hopefully you're already set at John chapter 6. We'll continue there. But before we do that, I think it's interesting how my interests change over over time as I get older. I used to look at my dad and, and his friends and, you know, just these, these older men that were part of my life. And they would kind of nerd out when they had the opportunity to go to Lowe's or Home Depot or, you know, before all that it was Marvin's. You don't know about Marvin's, but I do. Because uh, uh, my dad would go there often. I'm like, man, why, why aren't you into Legos, bro? Why aren't you into G.I. Joe's? Or why aren't you into baseball? Why aren't you into these things? And I thought, well, because he's an old man, he's not cool. Now I get older. And something hit me yesterday. I was, and it wasn't my wife, but something hit me. Uh, I probably did something to deserve it, but it wasn't. Uh, a few weeks ago, my or, or several months ago, when we were building uh, the Groves Pavilion, uh, out there where the pool is, I was on scaffolding in my Makita Impact driver. Right? It, it, it fell off and the head broke. And, you know, uh, it was a very sad moment for me. Yeah, I, I know it might be an idol. I, I don't know, but it, I was struggling. I was like, oh, my goodness. I, it really hurt my heart that this nice $130 impact driver fell to the ground and the head just broke off. It was held on by just a little, just a little rubber flange, you know. And so uh, I had planned or I had determined to take it and get it fixed for months and just hadn't done it. And finally, a couple of days ago or about two weeks ago, sorry, I went by the tool shed over there on the other side of town. I said, can we do something about this? And they said, absolutely, we'll send it to... Makita will give and take care of it. wasn't quite covered by warranty uh, because of the nature of the, of the malfeasance, right? So they called me yesterday morning, and I, I cannot express to you in full the feeling of glee that came over me when my impact driver was ready. And I thought that's an indication of my age probably. You know, 39, almost 40, what's, what's next? <laughs> what's next? You know, uh, reruns from 1970. I don't, I don't know. Uh, so it kind of hit me. I'm like, wow, this is, this is something. So I really, really nerd out about my tools, especially getting them back after they've been fixed. So I'll say this. If you ever want to bless your pastor, shower us with tools. We will say yes to them all. Uh, and that'll be fun time. So yes, literal tools. Uh, that, that has not much connection with today other than saying that's been my week and I have found great joy in that. But I will say this. Another thing that I find tremendous joy, and I, I mean this very seriously, is I do enjoy my preparation, my time that I get to put in. It's not always a lot, not always what I would desire, and it's not always what I feel is enough, but I enjoy the time that I get to be in the Word of God. Because I'll say this, I used to think that the academic pursuit was something so very different from your personal private quiet time, as if you couldn't worship, as if you couldn't enjoy God and do these things by pursuing a greater and a deeper knowledge of God. But I find that that's not true at all because I can have worship experiences in my time as I'm preparing. You know, it's not just I sit and pray. It's not just, oh, I'm reading through a psalm or a proverb. It's I'm digging into the Word of God. I'm opening up, I'm opening up resources. I'm using tools. There you go. There, we're connected, okay? I'm using tools, um, biblically speaking, to grow in my understanding so that I can more fully present these things to you. So, um, so that, that is probably one of the greatest joys of my weekly experience. So today, we're back in John chapter 6, and the objective today is pretty simple, and I want to show you that Jesus is a particular type of Savior. He's a very particular type 
of Savior whose returns are well worth the investment. So he's a very particular type of Savior. So if we go to John chapter 6 and we back up, not starting in verse 16, but we back up in 14, because last week we kind of covered 1 through 15, even though I didn't really say much about 14 and 15. So let me just tell you what happened in verses 14 and 15. So Jesus has fed these 5,000 men, potentially 15 to 25,000 people in total. He's fed these people, including women and children, most likely. And the crowd is, they respond as I guess Jesus would have anticipated that they would respond. They were not struck with wonder and awe at the fact that he is a Savior who has came, who has come to save souls. But they saw him as someone that was there to fill their bellies, someone that was there to free them from Roman oppression, to meet these worldly, earthly, physical needs. But Jesus is not that type of Savior. Does he do such things? Absolutely. But he's not that type of Savior. He's a particular type of Savior with a very particular agenda, and that is to be not just a Savior of problems or from problems, but a Savior of souls. And so the crowd in John 6 is a portrait of who we are because they follow Jesus for what he could do for them rather than who he was to them. They followed him because they had needs, because they, yes, were hungry, but they wanted to be free from the oppression of Rome. Whenever you read in the Bible of the triumphal entry, all scholars agree, or most conservative scholars will agree, that when Jesus comes in and they're, they're waving the palm branches and he comes in on the donkey and all of these things are happening and they're singing, singing Hosanna, it is thought that the majority of that crowd was not saying the Savior of the world, the one who would rescue us from darkness has come. The one who is finally an answer to our sin problem has come. That was not the sentiment expressed by the majority. The understanding is the sentiment expressed by the majority was finally someone that's going to get rid of Rome, they're going to give it to them, give them what they deserve, all of these things. And that's what they wanted. And Jesus was keenly aware of these things. So I'm going to read this, starting in verse 14 of John chapter 6. When the people saw the sign that he had done, feeding all of those people, including the disciples, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. This seems like good news. If you're reading this, and this is your initial, uh, initial reading, you're thinking maybe they're getting it. They're seeing this. He's not just someone that's filling their bellies to them. Maybe. He's a prophet. They're recognizing that he's something special. He's something different. Keeping in mind that prophets were not a strange thing to them. Okay, prophets had roamed the earth for years and years and years, kind of like they're dinosaurs, right? So prophets have been around for a long time, so they're not estranged from that idea. But you think this is hopeful language, and you move on to verse 15. Perceiving, Jesus, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus then withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Which is interesting. Jesus is the king, right? Why would Jesus put a stop to their pursuit that he perceived regarding them making him king? He was king. We might look at this and say, Jesus, why did you do that? Because they're wanting to, they're wanting to boast in you. They're wanting to say to the world, this is the true king. This is the one who has come. But that's not the motivation of the crowd. That's not why they're seeking to make him the king. And so you're reading through the story, and then all of a sudden there's this break in the text. 
Which, if you're familiar with the rest of John chapter six, it doesn't. It, it, it does seem as this weird, uh, um, this this weird moment where you're reading through, kind of like the prayer of Jabez, that just somehow shows up, and it seems random. And you've got this episode of Jesus walking on the water. So here we are, John chapter six, Jesus walking through the feeding of the five thousand, this miracle of miracles, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we start hearing a different of a, of a different miracle. So Jesus withdrew, but when the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, the scripture says. They got into the boat and started across to the sea of Capernaum. It was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them, but they took off. The sea became rough because of strong wind. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they're three or four miles offshore, they see Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat. And they were frightened. Probably because they had never seen someone walking on water before. So they were afraid, they were frightened, the winds, I'm sure the waves were picking up, Jesus is walking. But note that John doesn't make much mention of the weather. I don't think the point of this little insert here regarding this miracle is to say, you know what, the weather was fierce, all these things were happening, and Jesus comes and he calms everything. I don't think the point is for us to focus on the weather, but I think the point is for us to see the presence of Christ. And why the presence of Christ matters so much. So they say, you know, when, the, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And that's it. That's, that's all the gospel mentions about that. Jesus walks on water. He defies nature, which is, by definition, a miracle. He does these things, and nothing else is mentioned. But what happens? He goes right back into the people. He goes right back into, John does, goes right back into discussing the story of the feeding of the 5,000. He goes right back into the crowd. He goes back into that context, which leads me to believe that John 16, John 6, 16 through 21, is placed there with the intention of reinforcing the former miracle. So this is what he's doing. He's saying, this is for the disciples to see and this is for the readers. Because the crowd didn't see this. They didn't know that Jesus had walked on the water. They were not privy to that visually. So who is this for? Well, for you and for me and for the disciples. And Jesus, because he's compassionate, because he's caring, and because he wants them to get it as his disciples, he is always presenting them with opportunities for belief. He's always saying, I'm going to show you things. Because you need it. You need to see stuff. And you might be someone like says that says, well, I need to see stuff. I feel like my faith is weak. And I have come to really believe that if my faith is waning, if my faith is weak, and I'm begging God for signs, I'm begging God for wonders, because I need to have my faith strength, uh, strengthened like the disciples, I have to come to the conclusion that if God thought I needed signs, He would give them to me. If God thought I needed signs, He would give them to me. So the fact that He hasn't at least anything new. We have the Bible. We have thousands of years. Written documentation. Eyewitnesses of all these things. And quite frankly, that might be what God is saying to me. I've given you all the signs that you can handle and your faith is still weak. So what makes you think that more signs are going to do you good? Maybe he's saying that to me. I do firmly believe that God is always taking me back to the text saying, look at these things. Seek me where I may be found, the scripture says. And where is God going to be found? In the text. 
think God, in His tremendous grace, He shows them yet another miracle, despite the fact that they just saw Jesus take five loaves and two fish and feed upwards of 25,000 people. And yet they still needed to see something. They still needed that. And, and I quickly identified with these disciples. God rescued me. God is always blessing me. He's always doing stuff. And I still find myself feeling as though I've been left out. As though God really hasn't blessed me all that much. And then God just has to remind me, look at all these things I've done for you. Maybe you can identify. So it is interesting to me how this narrative is recorded with this seemingly random insert of Jesus walking on the water. Jesus deals with the crowd of people. He walked on the water to meet the disciples in the boat and then begins to deal with the crowd again on the other side of the lake. The walking on water miracle is most likely there to substantiate the formal miracle of Jesus feeding the 25,000 people. So that's what I want to say about Jesus walking on water. So now we're going to move into the crowd. On the next day, verse 22, it says, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples, but that the disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Of course, we know why. We know what they wanted from him. Hey, he, he filled our bellies. He did this. Hey, we're going to be hungry again. He's, he's healed sick. He's done all these things. We've heard of him changing water to wine. What else can he do? I can't blame him. I can't blame him. I think it was, I don't know who, who, who I was talking to the other day about this. And I was saying, I can't, I can't blame people for this posture. You know, if Jesus was here, I very much want Jesus for who he is. But knowing what he can do, I'd be like, Lord, I've got this problem. I've got these ailments. You can take care of it because I know you can. So I don't think it's wrong to want Jesus to meet those earthly needs. But I think if our pursuit of Jesus is exclusively for that, then we're missing Jesus altogether. And it says, when they found him, because they were seeking him, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when, do, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, you are seeking me. And notice how he answers. He does he kind of, he doesn't really answer their question, but he provides a different response. He said, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And you might look at that and think, well, he said they didn't. It wasn't about signs for them. Maybe there's something different. The fact that he says, because you ate of the loaves and were filled, is the prime or the key indication that their motives were still messed up. He's saying, listen, you know, you found satisfaction in something that is lesser. And he goes on to explain it, and this is where it just gets more clear for us. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to and that is the key verse that we can see and know that the crowd still has this problem. They still have the wrong perspective and the wrong vantage point. They're still looking through natural eyes as natural men and women. And I think there's several things to pull out from this text for our discussion today. And the first is this. Jesus is not the Savior of your problems. Does he save problems? Absolutely. Does he fix infirmities? Yes. Yes. Not questioning that at all. But his overarching purpose is what? To save souls. 
Not to fix someone up to fix someone up temporarily, but to fix them up for eternity. That's that's the purpose. Redemption, right? Redemption from redemption of our souls, redemption from sin, rescue from the condemnation of our sins. So Jesus is not the savior of your problems, he's the savior of your soul. He says to them, Do not look for the food that perishes. This crowd, a portrait of humanity, wanted a savior who could deliver them from their current problems. That was their agenda. Not from their eternal problems. They needed a savior of souls, not a savior of problems. But what they were seeking was a savior of problems. And a savior of problems will never work. It won't work, and here's why. We never run out of problems. Our earthly problems are not the problem. Our nature is the problem. You see, Jesus could fill their bellies all day long. Jesus could heal their infirmities all day long, but it doesn't treat the problem. You can pad someone's ride all the way to hell, but it doesn't fix their problems. I think that's a part of the danger in not being specific in our evangelism. And not getting to the heart of the matter. Getting to sin, getting to separation, getting to brokenness, getting to wrath. I think there's a problem if we treat those who are not in Christ as brothers and sisters, because in a sense we just pad their ride. We just provide cushion for the ride all the way down to eternal separation from God. So we don't need a Savior that fixes our earthly problems. Because our earthly problems are not the problem. Our nature is the problem. Many take up the crusade of behavioral modification. We've talked about that a lot here. Many in their lifestyle evangelism, many in their efforts to be evangelistic, they go a different route that is not truly, truly missional. They go a different route, and they want to first say, hey, you need to get rid of your alcohol and cease being an alcoholic. You know, you're an addict here. You need to find freedom from this addiction, and if you can do that, then you can be right. Do you ever wonder why the people that you talk to, at least the people that I talk to, and I would say it is a 80% of people, hundreds of people over the years that I've talked to, I would say 80% of the lost people that I've talked to have said, I need to fix myself up, I need to clean myself up, I need to get some things right to make myself acceptable or presentable to God. Maybe there's genuine shame there that says, you know what, I'm just, I'm a wretch. You know, I, I, I couldn't presume to go to God now when I've got this and this and this and this. And I've heard that sentiment all the time. And it's rooted in behavioral modification. Let me do this so that I can achieve this. And that's a works-based salvation. And it's a salvation that doesn't exist. The alcoholic needs Christ more than he needs sobriety. The drug, addicted, the drug addict needs Jesus more than he needs to be clean. The habitual adulterer needs salvation more than he needs sexual purity in his life. Because our behavior is the byproduct of the root problem. And that is that our nature is corrupt when we are lost. And that's our main problem. This is why we sin. This is why this is why we behave the way that we do when we behave badly. We're still sinners. We're made new. We still have this deceitful heart. We still have this wicked thing going on, right? So we still sin. But those who are outside of Christ, those who don't belong, they succumb to that nature because there hasn't been regeneration, because there hasn't been 
uh, heart transplant that takes place. We aren't separated from God because of what we do. We're separated, we're separated from God because of what we are. We're sinners. We're guilty. Born guilty. And the scripture reinforces that over and over and over. When David said, in sin, my mother conceived me. David is saying, I was born with the imputed guilt of Adam. You were born with the imputed guilt of Adam, which is why you need the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Now, I know it can be a fun discussion to start talking through the age of accountability and all that fun stuff, but let me just say this. There's a reason. There's a reason why a child who doesn't know what sin is, there's a reason why a child who doesn't understand any of these things, there's a reason that that child doesn't have to be taught to break your rules, to show extreme selfishness, to throw tantrums. There's a reason why, because they're born with a corrupt nature in desperate need of God's work. All of us, that's what the scripture teaches. We're born into that. So we aren't separated from God because of what we do, but because of what we are. We're broken, we're fallen, we're hostile, we're enemies of God, estranged, and rebels against Him. So the scripture often gives these lists, these lists of types of people that won't inherit the kingdom of God. And they're exhaustive when you put them all together. Some of them are repetitive. But you have all kinds of things. It mentions homosexuals. It mentions liars, adulterers. It mentions, you know, uh, all kinds of, of folks. You know, I remember when I was a child hearing this song. You know, Revelation, Revelation 21.8, liars go to hell, liars go to hell, burn, burn, burn. That's, I don't know what you're talking about, vacation Bible school, but uh, <laughs> I heard my peers singing that song when I was little. So liars, right? The Bible mentions that. So many so many lists the Bible offers. But when you read that, you have to understand, it's not saying that this is why they go. It's saying the reason these things are the habits of their life, or the patterns of their life, or the life that they've given themselves to. It said, this is, this is who I am. This is what I want. They go that way because of the corrupt nature. It's because of who they are do what we do because of who we are. If all our earthly needs are met, we are still left with a major issue. So back to the Savior of problems. Let's just assume that we have a Savior of our problems. Let's just say that Jesus' agenda was to come in and say, I'm going to take care of everything that you need. You know, so, so alcoholic, no more an alcoholic. No more an alcoholic. No more an alcoholic. You're good. You're clean. All things are well. No more... No more addiction for you. You have all the food and shelter and clothing that you'll ever need. Those are needs that you might have, right? I'm going to come and not just take care of the things that are destroying your life, but the things that aren't bad but good for you that you're not getting and will kill you if you don't get it. So I'm going to provide you with those things. So you have food, shelter, clothing, all that you could ever need. You will be rich beyond your wildest imaginations. God, as Jesus will provide, or, 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 or God the Son will provide these things for you as a savior of our problems. You finally moved away from that ridiculous neighbor which some of us can identify with. You have the very best health and are guaranteed to live for hundreds of years. Everything you could want. All of your earthly problems, all of your ailments, all of your infirmities, all of your financial pressures, concerns, friendship issues, 
relational paradigms, all these things that can cause tension and stress in our life. Jesus says, I'm the Savior of their problems, and I'm going to fix them all. I'm going to take care of those things. And the response is simply, so what? Your life, you live a life with arms so full that you can't stand only to approach the presence of God with nothing to show for it. That really counts. So you live this life, you've got all these things, you've got all the things that a Savior of problems can provide for you, and you can't, literally can't even stand because the weight of your worldly goods, the weight of your worldly offerings and gifts that God has said, hey, I'm going to take care of all these things for you. And you can't carry it. God has taken care of so many things. And you think on this life and this earth, I've got everything taken care of. I want for nothing. I need for nothing. And then you stand before God, empty-handed. Empty-handed. Because you were without the one thing that mattered. And that's Jesus. You see, teaching that Jesus is the Savior of our problems is, in fact, a false gospel. What I just ran through for you is, if not exactly what the prosperity gospel is, it is dangerous, dangerously close to what the prosperity gospel is. The prosperity teaching teaches that Jesus and the indication of his love is manifested through healings, through financial gain, etc. The prosperity gospel teaches that earthly gains are the evidence of God's love and God's favor. You see, if Jesus was a savior of our problems, then the prosperity gospel might have some merit. But Jesus makes it very clear. In this text alone, I've given you these things. I've taken care of an earthly need of yours. You've seen all these other earthly needs that I've taken care of. Even something down to the fact that, oh, there was a, a wedding without wine, so I gave them some wine. Now there's much richer and deeper truth to that story, right? But, but he does all these things. And he says, but you know what? You can have all these things, but you can still have absolutely nothing because Jesus is not a Savior of problems, but He's a Savior of souls. Therefore, we must stop working for the food that perishes, is what Jesus says. So we go back into the Scripture, verse 25. When they found Him on the other side they said, of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, you are seeking Me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fills of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to life, which the Son of Man will give you. For God has set His seal on Him. So Jesus gives us His monument. He says, stop working for the food that perishes, because that's what they're after. They're following Him. This crowd is going after Him so that He can say, so that they can say, hey, give us more of that. I have a hunger issue, but I also have this financial issue. I have all these issues. You can meet those needs because you are a prophet. You are from God. You are powerful. You are all these things. But they didn't want him for the very reason that he came, and that was to rescue men from their own sin. He says, you saw signs. And these signs were meant to affirm his deity. But they were lost on you. I performed these great miracles, these great signs, and you can't look beyond the natural lenses of man. How do you miss those signs? We've seen it over and over and over from the woman at the well to the crowd to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. All natural minds that can't see the supernatural. In fact, they cannot until God regenerates their hearts. 
if people thought if they could just have this or that problem solved, all would be well. That sounds like me sometimes. Maybe it sounds like you. If God would just answer this issue, then I would be good. You know, I've got, I've got this, I've got a little job situation going on. If God could just answer this the way that I want him to, we'd be good. You know, and you, you apply it however you want. I think that sounds like us sometimes. We want a, we want a problem-solving Savior. And sometimes not so much a soul-saving Savior. To be sure, the potential of Christ is limitless. But the promises of Christ are guaranteed. So I want to express to you something right now. And that is this sort of grid. At least this is how my mind works. Is there's, the, there's the Jesus can grid versus the Jesus will grid. And I think sometimes we're guilty of living in this wrong grid or this wrong framework. Or our minds are set to what Jesus can do versus what he has promised or what he will do. And, and, and neither one are bad because we want to say Jesus can do all things. That's why we pray. That's why we pray for the things that God hasn't promised us. God hasn't promised that, that he'll deliver my mom from this disease. God hasn't promised that he would heal my mother from her rheumatoid arthritis. He hasn't promised those things. But does that mean I can't go and pray to him? That's fine. That's a grid. That's okay. Because he can. But if he doesn't, what does that mean? He's broken his promises? No, because he never promised that. Not on this side of heaven. So I have to be careful operating in this Jesus can grid and make sure that I'm inside the Jesus will grid. Here's the Jesus can grid. He can heal your he can heal cancer. He can heal others through you. He can calm the water. He can walk on the water. He can speak to nature and it responds to him in obedience. He can turn water to wine. He can speak through a donkey or cause a donkey to talk. He can do anything that is within his nature to do so. That doesn't necessarily mean he will. It doesn't mean that he will. But then there's the Jesus will grid. He will never leave nor forsake you, what the scripture promises. He will rescue those who believe. He will finish what he started in you. He will give you rest when you are weary and you come to him. Follow him, the scripture says, and you will have the light that leads to life. This is in the will grid. He will do these things. These are promises that he's made to you. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, the scripture says, and live righteously, and he will give you what? Everything you need. Jesus went to prepare a place for us and said that he will return for us. He will intercede for you. So there's this grid of Jesus can and Jesus will. And the problem is that people often operate in the wrong grid. They kind of set up camp in the Jesus can and then their hopes and their dreams get shattered. Or maybe their faith is rattled because although Jesus didn't promise things that they're praying for, their hopes are dashed because he didn't do what he could do, but he chose not to. I think we would do well to operate more in the Jesus will good and say, what are the promises that I have? What are the promises I have? And let me cling so very tightly to those so that nothing can move me, so that when I'm in this grid over here and when I'm praying that God would do these things, I know that He can, but if He doesn't, it's okay because I have these promises that are locked in. I have these promises that are secure. And this is an important theological point to make is that you need to keep in mind that anything that, anything that is done by God is the best possible thing for you and for me. 
So you're begging and you're pleading for this deliverance and for that. And it doesn't happen is the best possible thing for God's glory and for you at that moment, whatever that is. <coughs> whatever that is. And when you start to apply those things, it gets, it, gets, it gets thick. As you think through the situation scenarios in your life that are very difficult, maybe, this is best for me? Yeah. It was best that Job went through what Job went through. It was best that Joseph was sold into slavery and ended up in the pit. It was best for his life, best for the glory of God. Fast forward to Romans 9, we get this whole idea of the potter and the clay, and that's where we need to arrive at. Okay, whatever you're forming out of me in my life, that is best. And who am I to say to the potter, why have you formed me this way? I heard one preacher say, when you create your own universe, you can control it how you would like. And I think we insert that same idea there. Jesus can do all things within his nature, but only certain displays of that nature come to us as a guarantee. We can bank on the promises of God always. The things that he has revealed, the things that he said will come to pass. We wait with full confidence for these things. We go back to the text after verse 27. The crowd that said to Jesus these things, they've been seeking him. When did you get here? He says, look, you saw these signs. These signs meant to show something else, but you didn't get it. And your natural mind set on natural things. So you missed it. Now he's saying, hey, you need to stop working for the food that perishes. Stop working for the food that perishes. Verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent, whom he has sent. So that the work you do uh, sorry, that when I lost my place. So they, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but the Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Before we hear Jesus' final response, if we know what it is, does this not sound just like his encounter with this woman at the well? When she says, Sir, give me this water. Give me this water because I don't want to travel all the way over here to this well. Is there something more convenient for me? And then Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You want something that will satisfy you always? You want that kind of bread, the bread from heaven? He says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the bread. And it's interesting now, Jesus has spoken of himself in two very intentional, very specific terms, as living water and as bread of life. And it should come as no surprise from the creator of all things, and he created your bodies and my body to be sustained by food, and drink. And so what does he do? He uses something that's very clear, that's very intentional, and he says, in the same way that food and drink will give you life, I am the bread of life, I am the living water, and that's what will give you eternal life. We don't eat, we don't eat and drink bread once in our life and expect to, expect to live, do we? We need sustaining life. And Jesus is saying, I am sufficient. 
I will rescue you. I died once. And you believe on me. You put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is sufficient for a lifetime. That is the bread of life. Jesus has something much better for us than perishable goods. He has something much better for us than a cure to our ailments. When our bodies are deteriorating, when we start to die from the moment that we're born, Jesus has something much better for us. He's not going to lift the curse. You understand this? He's not going to lift the curse. It's going to come to its climax. It's going to come to its conclusion. And at that point, for those who are in Christ, He's going to complete them with the restoration of all things. But Jesus has something much better for us than perishable goods. If there were ever a verse designed to capture the sufficiency and the satisfying reality of Jesus, it's this one. He offers not what is sufficient just for now, but what's sufficient for eternity. That's a long time. But what a bread Jesus must be. He says you will never hunger and you will never thirst. Let me make a few notes about that as we close. Hunger and thirst is our body's way of telling us what we need. Your body will shut down, literally, if you go long enough without food and without water or without drink. Jesus is not saying that once in Him, you will never have a hunger or thirst for God. We have a hunger and thirst for God. We want God. We desire Him. He creates in us the ability to desire Him more and more as He makes Himself more and more knowable to us. So He's not saying that once you have this, you'll never hunger and thirst for Me. He's saying, in a very physical sense, that which is in you, hunger and thirst, that is in you to remind you that you need those things to sustain your life, he's saying, I will give you something. I will meet that need. There will never be another indicator that pops up and says, oh, you need this to sustain life because you've got it in Jesus. There will never again be a hunger or thirst indicator to let you know where you are deficient especially the needs pertaining to eternal life. So you see, there's a difference in having a desire for God and needing God. There's a difference in having a desire for God and needing God. Everybody's born with a need for God. Everybody's born with a brokenness. Everybody's born fallen and estranged, separated from the commonwealth of Israel, to use the language of Paul in his letter to Ephesus. All people need God, but not all people desire it. Lost people are starving people, but they fill their bellies with perishable bread. Therefore, they will always they will always hunger and thirst for God until He fills them with Himself in that sense. But you, as a follower of Christ, your hunger has been satisfied and your thirst has been quenched. So there's no indicator that comes up and says, you'll die if you don't have this because you have Jesus. Now there's conversations about spiritual maturity, there's conversations about sanctifications, there's conversations about the the, uh, the the word of the Lord. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's those conversations, but God has met the need of salvation in your life. He has met it in full. So your hunger has been satisfied and your thirst has been quenched. You have need for nothing else in this world. You have been filled with non-perishable bread. Your love and desire for the things of God may grow, but your need for life-sustaining bread has been met. Your need for Jesus. You have Jesus. We need Jesus every day. But He's come to us. He's entered into us. 
He's rescued us. He identifies with us and us with him. Jesus has endured the punishment you earned and therefore ensured that you can receive a righteousness that he earned for you. And that is what it means that we have the bread of life. Let's pray together and we'll be dismissed. Father, I pray that our minds would always be on texts like these. I pray that you would make clear areas that I cannot. That you would cause these things to settle in our hearts and settle our minds that they might yield fruits that are that are that are that are godly, that are honorable, that are right and good. And Father, I pray that as we leave this place, or that we might be intentional with our words, we might be intentional with our actions, Lord, and showing people that there is a different bread that is on the table, a bread that is going to satisfy us, and not just satisfy us momentarily, but can satisfy us for eternity. Lord, and I pray that it will be on our hearts. Lord, and it will be a desire of ours, that is, as it is a desire of yours, that the gospel may continue to spread, and that you might continue to rescue people from darkness and bring them into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Father, I pray for the areas that we are deficient, for the areas that we are weak. Lord, that you would strengthen us in those areas. Father, that as brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, we might learn to lean on one another, to lift up one another. Lord, as Moses had to have had to have Aaron hold his staff because he was just too weak to keep going. Lord, you know our humanity all too well. You know our weaknesses and our infirmities, and you know that we need your sustaining grace. We need you to lift us up every day. You need to keep us going and keep us from catastrophe or shipwrecking our faith. And I thank you that that's exactly what the gospel does. I thank you that the gospel is the reality that is continual. The gospel is what sustains us. The gospel being your death and your resurrection. The gospel being the imputation of your righteousness to all who believe. The gospel being the rescue from our condemnation, which we have most definitely earned. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for those things. We ask that you will just continue to keep us and sustain us, <coughs> making us more like Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.